Well, as I sent out an email to our prayer chain that we're going to be looking at the book of James for the next uh, few weeks, and the overriding theme that we're going to be looking at is uh, developing maturity in our Christian life. So we're going to be studying in James. I just want to encourage you to be reading in James during the week, studying James um, to see what the Lord wants to share with you. I want to start by sharing a little story about a young girl, a young lady who taught swimming lessons. That was her job. And when she would teach swimming lessons with a new bunch of young children, she would always leave the rope between the deeper water and the shallow water. She would leave the rope in place so that the kids would see that and there would be a sense of security in knowing that as long as they stay on this side of the rope, they're okay. And it would give them more of a freedom to learn to do what the instructor was teaching them to do. It was a safe place. And then after about a week, what she would do is she would remove that rope with all those little buoys. So there no longer was this dividing line between the shallow water and the deeper water. And she could always tell that the kids were a little nervous when she first did that. And one day, especially nervous, was one little boy. And the little boy came to the instructor and says, Please put that line back in. Please put that rope back up. He says, Because the deep water is coming into the shallow water. And we can chuckle at that thought. But the reality is, once again... We often may not say those same words, but that's what we're thinking. Something's going on, and it's taking us out of our comfort zone. And the deep water is getting into the shallow water in our lives. We often face trials and tests, and the title of my message this morning is simply, What's with all these trials in my life? Sometimes, somewhere along the line, we may have picked up the idea Maybe it was on our own, or maybe it was because somebody had shared a, a teaching with us that if you would just accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, life is going to be nothing but a bed of roses. Your troubles are over, your trials are over. It's going to be great. And if you've been a Christian more than about 30 minutes, you know that's not true. Trials and testings come anyway. And those trials and testings mess up our comfort zone. We just think we're finally in a nice, comfortable place. We we feel safe there. God's using us there. We're, we're, We're functioning and operating in some of our gifts and talents, but it's safe. That dividing line that is there. There's a there's a rope that makes us feel safe. And once we get challenged to get out of that comfort zone we get really, really uncomfortable. There's one thing about a comfort zone that I can assure you. As long as you stay in your comfort zone, you are never going to allow the Lord to take you into the destiny that He has for your life. The destiny for your life is not going to be found in a comfort zone. God's going to mess with your life. He's going to mess with it. You can count on it. And James is very clear in addressing that in the lives of believers. When we're confronted with the book of James, one of the things we're confronted with is growing up. James is saying it 
He's, he's pretty bold. As we go through the book of James, you're going to see, if you, if you kind of, like me sometimes, so I, I, I grasp what I'm reading sometimes, I always ask, who's he talking to, blah, 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 what, what's he trying to say, etc., etc. And then sometimes they're trying to put a tone of voice on the words I'm reading. You ever do that? And I think if there was a tone of voice sometimes with, with James, it might be one of the goals that would cause me to step back and go, whoa, pretty bold, kind of getting in my face. But he's really good at doing it with love and compassion. But we're going to see that James is going to confront Christian maturity and holiness. Now we as as a church, we're under grace. But guess what? Holiness is still a part of the Christian life. God still wants us to live holy lives. Now, I understand, and I know you understand, we mess up and we sin. But as Brian shared this morning, even during one of the songs, you know, once we're saved, we have the righteousness of Christ. God sees us as righteous and holy because he sees us through the death and resurrection through the blood of Christ. But that's not an excuse not to live a holy life as the Holy Spirit works and lives in us and leads us. So we're going to be looking at the book of James and I hope when we get through with this, we feel like, you know, we've really been encouraged by James, but also challenged by James, and that we have the grace of God to respond rightly to what James wanted to teach us. So first I want to give you a little background on James. There's a little bit of discussion in, in, in theology, who really wrote the book of James? We're pretty sure of one thing, his name was James. But in the Bible, there's more than one James. But it seems like most, most, and I guess I am of the persuasion that the author of this book is James, who was the half-brother of Jesus. The half-brother of Jesus. So Jesus would have been his older brother. Can you imagine living up to that? And it maybe had a little bit of that effect on them because the Bible tells us James and his other brothers didn't really believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Even when he was doing all these wonderful things, James really didn't believe who he was until after the resurrection. And then he believed. The book of James was written somewhere around 45 to 50 A.D. Okay, 10, 15 years after Jesus was crucified, raised from the dead and ascended to heaven. And he became the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Um... In a sense, he was kind of a big shot in the church. And he led the church for a number of years. And, and history tells us, historians that have written, they talk about his death. And history seems to say there, there's, there's a considerable agreement, but there's some disagreement on some of the details. But his death goes something like this. He's the leader of the church. And the other more pharisaical leaders come to him and say, you know, it's causing some problems, what we're all hearing, and and they're going a little bit too far with this whole Jesus, the Messiah thing. And, you know, freedom and liberty in Christ and grace. And they said, "We, we think we need to address this, and you're the guy to address it. So history says that they took him up to basically the pinnacle of the temple, figuring that would be a great place for him to share and straighten out these people. Well, the problem was, when he got up there, he started talking about Jesus Christ, the Messiah, grace, the love of the Lord, 
So they did the only reasonable thing. They pushed him off the top of the temple. And he hit the ground, but he didn't die. So they stoned him. And before he was dead from stoning, he started to speak. And a guy who did laundry for a life had his big stick that he used to move the clothes around, and he clubbed him in the head. And history says that's how James died a martyr's death. This is the guy who wrote the book of James. And when we go through the book, you're going to see his primary message is to exhort believers, and it's primarily Jewish believers. He addresses it in his, in his, in his introduction. He says, to the 12 tribes dispersed, the 12 tribes of Israel, the Jewish people. So he's speaking primarily to the Jewish Christians in the book, and his primary message is to encourage them to grow up, to become mature in Christ, to live lives of holiness. Actually, this book deals more with the practice of being a Christian than it does precepts and doctrine. How should we then live type of message. He, as I said, is a little bold, especially when it comes to living in holiness, living holy lives. But he does definitely show how Christians, our faith and our love should be expressed in the everyday things that we do in our life. Practical things. Matter of fact, he pretty much deals with just about every area of Christian life. He deals with, you know, what a Christian is, what he should do, what he does, how he should speak, what he should say, what he feels. And then, of course, he also deals with all of what he has, the material things. And he does it boldly, clearly, we might even say bluntly, but he does it with love. It's a short book, five chapters. But you'll see in those five chapters, 15 different times as he's given instruction, he starts out by saying, brothers. Brothers. He's identifying with them in a a term of endearment to them. Love and truth combined. So I want to start by reading James chapter 1, verses 1 through 8. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes scattered among the nations, greetings. Then he says, consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let's pray. God, I pray that as we look into the book of James, you speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Open our hearts and open our minds to understand and give us wisdom. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Consider it pure joy. Boy, those words should jump out at you. Consider it pure joy. Consider what pure joy? Trials and testings and and all of those things that get us out of our our comfort zone. Why? would we consider it pure joy when we're being persecuted and facing adversity in our life? And notice he says, consider it pure joy whenever. 
whenever. In other words, be ready for it, anticipate it, it's going to come. It's going to come. It's going to happen. We can look at many scriptures that Jesus cautioned them and warned them and told them, you're going to suffer for my sake. I suffered, you're going to suffer. I was persecuted, you're going to be persecuted. It's going to happen. Be ready for these trials and tests to come into your life. Notice what it produces. Sometimes, and it might seem like a play on words, but it's important difference. It doesn't say trials and testing produce faith. Does it? It doesn't say that. It says trials and testing produce perseverance, a steadfastness, a patience that produces a maturity and a completeness in us. It doesn't produce faith. The Bible's really clear where faith comes from. In Romans 10, verse, 7, uh, uh, Romans 10, verse 17, it says, Consequently, faith comes from hearing the Word the message, and the message is heard through the words of Christ. Faith comes by hearing the Word. That's where faith is produced. Our faith comes from the Word of God. Knowing and believing the Word of God. Understanding what it says as the Holy Spirit reveals it to us. Our faith is tested through trials, testings, and persecution. Notice what it produces. It produces that perseverance that brings that maturity. It produces good stuff. It produces maturity. What's maturity? It's a proven character. There's a consistency to our character as we grow to mature in Christ. There should be a consistency of our character that's becoming more and more and more Christ-like. A maturity. And it says a maturity that is complete. In other words, it's fully developed. Nothing lacking. You know, there's areas in my life where I feel like I'm proving pretty good in my maturity as a Christian. And there's other areas I go, holy smokes, I didn't even know that was still that messed up. I'm acting like a baby Christian at best. These trials and tests come into our life to bring us to greater and greater maturity and a completeness. And it says lacking nothing, not lacking anything. Wow, that's the kind of maturity, that's the kind of Christian life that we want to live. We want to walk not lacking anything at all. So where do trials originate? Now this could be controversial, but hear what I'm saying and then go ahead and react if you want. What is the fruit that we see here in the the book of James of trials, testings, and persecution? Maturity. Christ-likeness, patience, perseverance. Are they good things or are they bad things? Good things. Where do good things come from? God. Now that might rally your theology a little bit. Trials, testings, persecutions produce good things. They come from God. It tells us that every good thing, James 1.17, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows shadows there are times and things that we might call a trial or a test or a persecution that are not trials tests, and persecutions they are not from god they're from the devil just because there is something in our life that's not good doesn't mean it's from the devil and it doesn't mean it's got to be from god we need to discern we need to understand matter of fact we need wisdom to know what it is, where it's coming from. 
There are things that God does not give us that you and I might call a trial and a test. I do not believe cancer is a trial or a test given to us from God. I don't believe that. I believe that's sickness, disease. They're from the devil. Jesus died by his stripes. We are healed. So there's a whole line we could go there. But I just want you to, to think in your mind, what is a trial? What is a test? What is, what is persecution? And what is the outcome? Well, the outcome depends an awful lot on what we perceive it to be and how we respond, whether we respond, right, we respond rightly to it or not. We see lots of examples throughout the Bible of, of people in the Bible going through trials and testings and persecution that bring about great fruit in their life. Paul and Silas are in prison. What does God do? He uses it amazingly. Look at the life of Joseph. Trials and tests and persecution. Man, one after the other, after the other, after the other. All to build character, to fulfill the destiny that God had Joseph's life planned for. To rule the world, basically. Might take a little character development if that's your calling. We see that. Look at the life of Paul, the most amazing apostle that we can read about, wrote most of the New Testament. His life was trial and test and persecution over and over and over again. And when you think what Paul, what the, you know, if, if this was the, the clay that God started with in Paul, knowing then as Saul, he was a religious, pharisaical, legalistic murderer, killing Christians. Might take a little bit of character development to become the great Apostle Paul. Trials and tests, persecution, made him who he was. Doesn't mean it was enjoyable, doesn't mean it was pleasant. But the Word of God says, count it pure joy when you go through these trials and tests. Consider it pure joy. We need to understand that trials are not a sign of God's displeasure with us. If you're going through a trial or test and somebody comes to you and says, "Uh uh-oh, you must have sin in your life. God's punishing you. I don't believe that. It's not a sign of His displeasure. God does things in our lives for good to bring about good purposes. That doesn't mean it's always comfortable. It doesn't mean it's always pleasant. Sometimes it's anything but that. Ask yourselves this, when do we learn the most about who God is? When do we draw closest to the Lord? When the midst of a trial or a test, persecution. There's nowhere else to go. We turn to God and we grow spiritually. Our character is developed. Our faith is tested. It's sharpened. It's made more firm. Count it. Consider it pure joy. It's not punishment. It's not displeasure. It's simply instruments to grow us into Christian maturity. In John 16, verse 33, it says, I have told you these things. This is Jesus speaking. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. Because in this world you will have trouble. How can I have peace then? The rest of the verse says, because I have overcome the world. He's warning us. He's telling us it's going to come. But in the midst of it, you can have peace because he's overcome the world. And I just want to reiterate this one more time. It says, consider it pure joy. Consider it pure joy. He doesn't tell you, feel like it's all pure joy. You don't have to put on a smile and fake it. Because I'm supposed to be joyful and happy. He doesn't say that. 
He doesn't say to us that we are to be joyful for the trial. Oh God, thank you, I'm going through hell. No. He doesn't say that. What does He say? He says, consider it pure joy. What does that mean? It's an attitude. It's a conscious decision. It's an attitude of joy. God, I don't like it. I don't know what's going on yet. Please give me wisdom. Help me understand. Give me strength. Encourage me. But I'm going through this because I'm going to come out more mature. I'm going to come out more like you. Help me get through this. And he will because he loves you. He loves me. You know, and there's another advantage to these trials as we go through them that doesn't directly affect you and me. You know, we're, we're being transformed into this mature person, complete in all things. That's awesome. But you know what else happens when we go through trials and we consider it pure joy? We know there's a joy. We have joy. We've decided to, to trust God because He has overcome the world. The world watches. And as you're going through that trial and testimony, you are a living witness of the grace of God. You're a living witness of the goodness of God. You're a living witness of what it means to be a Christian. Not freaking out, fearful, worried, scared, in the middle of a pity party because you're going through a trial. You don't have to be happy, but consider it joy. How can I do that? Well, a good thing is, James doesn't give us that because, you know, when I read through this, and as you read through it, I, and I'm listening to his argument and the things James is pointing out, it seems like it's logical to me. But then I think about consider it pure joy, and it's like it does how? How? I get your logic. Logic is good, but I want it to really work in my life. How do I do this? And he answers the question. It's almost if he assumes that the readers are going to ask that same question, that they're going to wonder. And he says, this is really, really revelation, okay? Are you ready? Write this down. Ask God. That's what he says. He says, ask God. He says, if any of you lack wisdom, ask God. What's wisdom? Is it a measure of your IQ? Absolutely not. Does it have anything to do with how smart you are? Uh Uh-uh. Wisdom. God, what's going on and how do I apply it in my life? What do I do with this? And he's saying to us, you're going to go through these trials, consider it pure joy, and if you don't understand what's going on, ask Him. Ask God to give you wisdom. James writes this just assuming that they're going to need to know wisdom, have wisdom. They don't need just knowledge. They don't need just this information. They don't need just the facts. They don't need just the words on the piece of paper or the words coming out of James. What they need is wisdom to take those words and apply it in their life. He assumes. And you know what? I think he makes this assumption because he knows this. When you and I are going through tests and trials, we are in danger. Do you know that? You're in danger. You know what you're in danger of? Whining, murmuring, complaining, falling into bitterness, becoming rebellious, maybe even blaming God. We are in danger when we go through a test and a trial. That's what the enemy would like to do with that trial that the Lord is bringing into your life so that you can mature in Christ. He would like to twist that thing and distort it and cause you to go down that path. He knows that we, when we go into that trial, there's a danger of losing the benefits 
of what God intends for us when we look at the trial rightly. There's benefits to be gained in maturity, perseverance. We are in danger. And, and James understood that clearly. Mankind, you and me, are really short-sighted and we have a great propensity to sin. All of us. All of us. So when trials and testings come and I become a complainer and a murmurer, when I become bitter, when I start blaming God, what I'm doing is sinning because I'm not trusting what the Word of God says. Is my assurance in the Word of God, the truths of the Word, I mean, when I'm in a trial or a test, are His promises any less true? Is He going to leave me there and forsake me? Am I going to be all alone? Is there no way out or will He always make a way out? Will He use this for good or is it going to destroy me? What does His Word say? That's why the Word is so important in producing faith. If I don't know the Word, there's nothing to produce faith in my life. We need to be in the Word. If you're sick and tired of getting your butt kicked by trials and testings and persecutions, get in the Word. It'll build your faith. It will produce faith as we're in the Word. And my assurance then becomes in the Word. And when I'm in that trial and when I'm in that test, I'm going to tell you right off the bat, I don't like trials and testings. But I'm assured that what His Word says is true, that if I go through those trials and testings rightly, with the right attitude, they will produce fruit that will take me down the road closer to my destiny in Christ. And I don't want to live a boring, humdrum life, even if that will still get me to heaven. I want to reach and achieve the destiny that Christ has for me because it will be exhilarating, it will be exciting, and it will be rewarding. We don't want to stay in a comfort zone. If you're like me, I'm a kind of a sustainer by nature. I kind of like to know my environment, and I, well, I'm going to go further. I like to control my environment. I'm sure none of you do that. It's not in you, but it's in me. But I know when I do that, I am limiting what God has for me. I am limiting my growth. I am slowing up the process. I just want to cooperate. More and more God. Just whatever you need. Whatever you want. I'm going to trust that your grace will be sufficient even when I hate it. When my flesh is crying out and, and the enemy's trying to twist my thinking. Lord, do whatever, you, do whatever it takes. He says, ask God. Ask Him. You know, Without wisdom, you and I are pretty clueless. You can quote the Word maybe better than anybody you know. If you've got no wisdom, I don't care. Because what you've learned is nothing but information. There are a lot of people out there that can quote those Scriptures better than most of us in here. But then look at their life. Do you see a walk of Christian maturity and holiness? They have no wisdom. Wisdom from God, not human wisdom. God's wisdom. Imagine this. Imagine this, because it's true. When I pray for wisdom, I'm being obedient to what God tells me to ask for. And it's like a conduit opens up from the throne of heaven, from the mind of God himself, and he gives me wisdom. That is hard 
for me to comprehend in the natural. But nevertheless, it's true. And he says, ask me. Ask me for wisdom. But then, he follows that up with a couple requirements of asking for wisdom. It seemed too easy, didn't it? What does he say? In verses 6 through 8, he says, But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt. How can I believe and not doubt? I need to know the Word. I need to have faith that's built up in me by the Word of God. I need to have a confidence that the Word of God is true and that He is faithful and I can be assured, I can be assured that He's got my back. He's going to get me through this thing. That's why it's so important that we know the Word. Ask in faith. Ask in faith. Continue reading. If any of you like, or verse, uh, let's see. I'm going to start over at verse 6. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. Verse 7. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. Now that is bold. Pretty in your face, not very gray, a lot of black and white. Thank you, James. That if I'm a little bit like a wave tossed around in the wind, I can't get anything. And then he even makes it worse. He says, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. You know, I did a little word study on double-minded. What I found is it means two souls. Two souls. I'm like, two souls. I don't know what that means for sure, but it doesn't sound good. Two souls. So as I continued to, to study what it meant, I discovered that it means one who wavers and is inconsistent. One who doesn't really have principles that they stand on because they're so assured that they're true. They don't have that kind of stability. They're controlled more by their emotions than their faith. They're influenced by popular opinion or the latest teaching they listen to on the radio or TV. Flipping from here to there and back again. Matter of fact, it finishes up in this word study. It says, to give you a picture of what it looks like, it's kind of like an unsteady, unstable drunk trying to walk. If we didn't get any of the rest of it, we can understand that. Some of us have experienced it. That's what he's saying. Double-minded man, don't expect wisdom. So there is a prerequisite. We need to ask by faith. Produced by the Word of God. Be in the Word. Boy, if you want to make all the trials and tests that you're going through now and the ones you're going to go through in the future because you're going to go through more and you want to go through it with the right attitude and you want to reap the benefits of what that trial and test or persecution will bring to you, if you want to really see God taking you closer and closer and closer to that destiny that it has for you, get in the Word. Get in the Word. If you're not in the Word and you expect to change, well, there is a, there is a, a human proverb out there, isn't it? The definition of what? Insanity. Just keep doing what you're doing expect it to turn out different. If you're not in the Word, don't go whining to somebody else. I mean, I'll try to love you, but I'm going to tell you to get in the Word. If you're not in the Word, your faith is not being produced. There's a reason 
God gave us the word. And there's a reason that the Holy Spirit is the perfect teacher to come and teach us the word. And the wisdom of God is available to all of us. How we receive that answer from God and how assured we can be that he will answer it depends on our assurance in God. So how can you be joyful in the midst of a trial? James had a real practical solution. If you like formulas or recipes, here it is. One, recognize it as a trial. We need wisdom to recognize it as a trial. I mean, sometimes you look at somebody and you go, how are you doing? Oh, I'm having a bad day. Well, it might not be a good day, but it could be a trial, a test. How do I know? Maybe the devil's involved and he's trying to do something to mess with your life. How do you know? Pray. Ask for wisdom. God, what is this? Is this a trial? Show me the test. Show me the trial. Show me what it is. Wisdom. Two, remember that trials have a purpose. I remember the first time someone told me this. When you are in the middle of it and you don't even know what it is for sure, ask God, what do you want to do in my life? What do you want to do in my life, Lord? What do you want me to learn? What are you trying to show me? What are you trying to reveal me? What character trait in me are you trying to remove? What one are you trying to build? What is it you're trying to do in my life? We need to see beyond the trial and remember that there's a plan. And the plan, I don't know the details for any of us, but I knew, do know this much about the plan. It's to transform you and me into the image of Christ. That's what those trials and tests from the Lord will do. Number three, get your focus off the trial and off of yourself. Our nature, that human nature, that fleshly nature, when I'm going through it, all I can think about is me and the trial, me and the test, me and my misery, me and my discomfort. And, you know, sometimes we become that person that whenever you talk to them, all they can tell you about is how much their life stinks and what's going on. They're not having a bad day or a bad month. They're having a bad life. And they can hardly wait to tell you. We need to realize if we're going through a trial or test that's come from God, there's a purpose. We need to start to seek the eternal, eternal perspective. For those of you that have been here for the last year, you know we spent a lot of time going through the story and we talked about the upper story, the plan of God. The lower story, what we're going through here. This is what I mean by we need to have an eternal perspective. Boy, this is painful for now, God, but will you, I know you'll get me through it. I know you're with me, and I know you have a plan and a purpose. Eternal perspective. And 14, or the 4.4, pray in faith and ask God for wisdom. Ask Him for strength. Ask Him for encouragement. Here's a suggestion for you, and I encourage you to think about this. Make praying for wisdom your number one prayer priority. See what happens. God, when I'm going through this, start with, God, give me wisdom. When you're praying for someone else, pray for wisdom. It's amazing when the pressure's on, I mean, even like last night in our worship and healing service, you know, 
Uh, sometimes you, you, someone comes forward for you to pray over him, and you're standing there, and you're, God, oh God whatever I'm going to say is just going to sound canned. Dear Jesus, heal him. Step back. God, give me wisdom. I remember one young lady last night when I, God prompted me to ask a particular question, and she looked at me and she says, how did you know that? I'm brilliant. <laughs> she knows better and I know better and all you obviously know better. God will give us wisdom. Not only that, He'll give us the words to speak when we don't know what to say. He loves that person you're praying for more than, more than you do. He's brought them to that moment as they're in their own trial and their own test. And He might allow us to be part of the solution. God, what a great deal this is. Make wisdom your number one prayer request. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that through Jesus, through his death, through his resurrection, you provided a way for our sins to be forgiven. And God, I ask you to forgive our sin, forgive my sin when I doubt you, when I complain or murmur, get bitter and angry. God, forgive me. Thank you that through Jesus I am forgiven. God, I ask that you would give us wisdom to understand what it is we're going through as we go through it. That you would give us wisdom to see the big picture, to understand what it is you're trying to accomplish in us, through us. God, give us that eternal perspective, the wisdom to understand what you see, what your plans are. God, I pray that even as some right here today are going through very, very difficult trials and tests, Lord, I pray you give wisdom to know that that's what it is. Or give us wisdom to know that it's something else. That there is an enemy out there seeking to kill, steal, and destroy. That we can battle against him. Give us wisdom. Lord, I pray that you would give us a desire that can only come by your Holy Spirit working in us. Give us a hunger and a desire for your word. God, help us through those seasons where it seems stale or our spirit is dry. Draw us back to your word that we might crave it. Lord, I thank you that you love us so much. God, that you love each one of us that know you as our Lord and Savior unconditionally. Lord, I pray you would set us free of that performance trap that puts us in such bondage. I thank you, Lord, that that's the kind of love you have. A love that wants us to walk in freedom and liberty. Thank you, Lord. Now, Lord, I pray that as we go our separate ways, you would watch over us, that you would bless us Keep us safe from harm. Keep us safe from the enemy. God, increase us. Increase our, give us opportunities, divine moments, divine, divine insights that we could really be witnesses and testimonies of your wisdom in our life. Lord, I pray that these things would happen for the glory of your son Jesus and the expansion of your kingdom. And it's in your son's name we ask these things. Amen.